all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 173 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the Georgia Railroad episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that back in 1845, the Georgia Railroad was the world's longest railroad. It ran from Augusta to Marthasville which would be basically Atlanta. And that mileage for which it ran was 173 miles. And with that little bit of Georgia Railroad knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! Uh, Yes, that is right. From the windy city of California, or windy city of California, from the windy (laughs) city of Los Angeles, California, at least today, this is your co-host, Tim. Matthew, how was your Easter? My Easter was rather quiet. Um, Like somebody died? No, 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 just girls got their Easter baskets and stuff and did their little Easter egg hunt and... Um, we had a nice, just quiet breakfast and stuff, and then everybody kind of relaxed and had a nice afternoon, and I went off to work. That was, that was about it. I guess Easter is one of those holidays when once the kids just hunt for the Easter eggs, there's really not much more to do. How, how was your, how was your Easter? I understand that there may or may not be a story related to something you did this last week. I found out that the stench of burning your Eyelash and eyebrow hairs is considerably more rank than burning your head hair. And have have you know? I mean, have you tested this before? Have you come to this nope. conclusion? No, you have not. Have you ever burned your eyelashes off or your eyebrows off? Nope. I have not pulled a Ron Swanson, a la season three finale of Parks and Rec. I have not done that. No. So last week was a big concert week for me i a good friend of mine roger he goes by bayonne was out here so i got to see him and uh on thursday night i got myself a sixth row ticket to go see david gilmore of pink floyd fame live at the hollywood bowl and then on friday night i was going to see ufo at a really cool club show so i went to go see David Gilmore and David Gilmore and Pink Floyd, you know, they were a part of my formative years of drug use, of marijuana, of smoking. And so I thought, well, shit, if I'm going to see anything related to Pink Floyd, I owe it to myself to enjoy it to the fullest. As free-minded as I can be, I must enjoy it so. So I get there, I roll myself a little joint, it is legal here. Got my little mini lighter put in my pocket, found some cheap parking. Uh, Cheap parking as in $1 until the meter was out, so I didn't have to pay $40 bowl tickets. You're a fool if you pay $40 bowl tickets. And so I walked my two miles to the bowl... Got there, and like I said, sixth row, middle seats. So I was directly in front of the stage, six rows away from David Gilmore, where I would be. So I get there, and I'm like, man, as the place is filling up, there's no, like, cool people hanging out, you know? Like, so if I pulled out my dube and started smoking the J, 
you know, I, I would be more of a nuisance than anything else. That's kind of what I thought. Because it was mainly old people and very rich people. I think they think that they are too hoity-toity for that type of, type of thing. So the concert starts. I'm, you know, got my big old 24-ounce Bud Light. Sitting there, listening to the concert. Plays one song. Thing was Rattle That Lock. And then suddenly these two douchebags just start... Ah, Dave! Dave, I want to sleep with you, Dave! Fuck me, Dave! Come on, Dave! One douchey frat Asian dude and this one older douchebag. And on both sides of me, just really kind of like being annoying. And every time the noise, the music goes silent for a moment, they're always screaming something. And I thought, shit. Shine on your crazy diamond is is just about over, and I am being distracted by these fools. So by that time, I decided, you know what? I don't give a fuck what these people think. I'm going to enjoy this goddamn concert. So everybody stood up and clapped, and as they stood up and clapped, I sat down real quick, pulled out the J, pulled my hair back a little bit, and lit it up. And as I was lighting it up, a gust of wind kicked in. And that gust of wind took my hair, flipped my hair around, and it landed directly in the path of the flame from my lighter. <laughs> and my hair happened to be very dry that day. And a big old flame shot up, singeing both my eyebrows and my, or my left eyebrow, both my eyebrow and my eyelash on my left-hand side. Luckily, I got the joint lit, so I was able to smoke a little bit. Because, right when I did that, somebody behind me goes, oh my god, I smell burnt hair. I'm like, oh shit, they smell, it'll go away, it'll go away so fast. I mean, it'll, it'll, it's not gonna last that long. You can tell yourself that as much as you want, but the stench of burnt Hair, let alone burnt eyelash slash eyebrow hair, lingers. And I can tell you exactly how long it lingers in the distance that that stench reaches. That stench reached David Gilmore on stage because I saw him swatting his nose and kind of like making these funky faces as well as the people in the front row were doing the same thing. And that was happening for about 35 minutes. So, for about 35 minutes of the very entertaining uh, <laughs> David Gilmore concert, I was the cause of some mild distraction. Wow. And I have the That's... burnt eyebrow, or the singed eyebrows and the eyelashes to prove it. It's kind of fun to feel, though. And in fact, the stench didn't really go away until yesterday morning. Well, for what it's worth, you can say you've definitely made an impact on a famous person. Yeah, yeah. Albeit temporarily. Yeah. So. Whether it be good or bad, you know, maybe he'll write a song about it. Just look for a song entitled The 35-Minute Smell. Yeah. <laughs> so, right? You know, that's... That's got to be something, right? Sure. We'll move from there and go to the mail. Of course, you can send us mail always to the show at slscast.com. We have a couple of Twitter followers. Uh, and, of course, you can follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. Um, let's see here. Um, we have, uh, now that I'm older, another podcast. It's apparently getting getting jiggy with us so they're at i'm older pc so that's kind of fun 
you want to check out that kind of shit. Uh, let's see here. We also have Moviesource Rex at MREX Podcast is following us as well. So look at that. We're just podcasting it all up. It's amazing. Holy moly. Uh, and then let's see here. We have two emails. Two, two emails from real people. One is Johnny, and his subject is, Finally, Johnny has emailed the SLS cast. He says, Right before Star Wars The Force Awakens released in theaters, I mentioned on an episode of my podcast, available in ADHD, searchable on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Yeah, I plugged my show. What of it? Anyway, I mentioned that I have paid 50 to $60 to watch a UFC or WWE pay-per-view, and I would pay the same amount to watch Star Wars in my living room. I hate my local theater, I hate watching movies in 3D, and I really fucking hate crowds of people. Yes, I admit there are probably better theaters out there that would make the movie-watching experience more enjoyable, but not in my town. So imagine my excitement when Tim mentions a box I could hook to my TV and what day-and-date theatrical releases in my living room. I can drink a beer, I can pause it if I got to take a piss, and I can smoke. I don't know if this tech will ever get approved and manufactured because the movie industry is a weird beast, but there is hope for a guy like me who just wants to enjoy a few movies every now and then. Right now, I'm stuck debating between waiting for Batman v Superman when it comes out on Blu-ray, or watching another movie in 3D because local fucking piece of shit theater here in Medicine Hat, Alberta doesn't have any 2D showings available. So fuck all that right now. Love the show. Keep on rocking in the free world. Also, story about spelling and grammar. I have not had much coffee yet, and I'm too lazy to proofread this. Johnny. So it turns out that he did actually go see um, Batman v Superman because I was invited to be on his show, and after this episode airs, he will have an episode that airs and will be discussing Batman v Superman, among myriad of other topics. So, Tim, it seems that uh, you're spreading the good word about screening room. So, I'm sure, now I'm sure Sony of... appreciates that a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently AMC does. So, um, no, but uh, so now you're kind of on the hook, and you have to keep us posted on it. So, sure, that's that seems to be that seems to be what's up. Also, we have yet another. Wonderful email from our lovely Diana. Uh, she says, couple of things in the subject line. Says, hey guys, thanks for sharing your beer with me, Tim. Some IPAs are better than others. Since I am your favorite listener, right? See, I told you, she's listening, she's on to you. I'm showing my age by saying I read The Little Prince, I suppose, but boy, it's a classic little book, not to be missed. Looks like a children's book, but don't be deceived, would make a great gift for a high school grad. Also, high five to Matt, I love K9. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me of it. Yeah, it's silly, but so much fun. Makes you age backwards. And has Jim Belushi. Okay, maybe I'm biased with my crush on him, but I'm going to seek it out again soon. Happy spring, Diana. So, wait, thank wait, you wait, very did, much, did Diana. Did I just hear a crush on Jim Belushi? You did. You did. But you also heard that, you're, you know, the favorite listener. Our, I think she's no, your favorite our, our, listener now. <laughs> <laughs> she is she is our self-proclaimed favorite listener. And uh 
Yeah, she says, I love K9, all caps, by the way. That's right. And, and four exclamation points. So that's right. What's up now? Anyway, so thank you very much both to Johnny and to Diana for sending us email. Again, you can always send us email uh, to the show at slscast.com. And if you would like to be announced as a follower on Twitter, if you have not been already, for which we thank you um, for doing so already, uh, again, give us a follow at the SLScast. So with that being said, um, I would like to... Um, do a, a just a touch of news of the weird, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. All right, so my news of the weird comes to us all the way from Germany. So, shout out to our boy who is German but lives in Finland. You know who you are, Raphael. All right, maybe this was you. No, it's not you. I mean, it could be you because it's pixelated here. Your face would be pixelated in this picture. But I could see it being you, but I don't think it's you. Um, from deathandtaxesmag.com by way of Joe Vix. Sex shop catches fire. Man refuses to leave until Throbin Hood finishes. <laughs> A sex shop in Germany caught fire, and one man refused to leave until he finished watching his movie, even if it killed him. Sexy Angel, a store in Hamburg, suddenly caught fire, injuring two store employees. As firefighters fought the blaze, they discovered one man, still locked in one of the viewing booths, coughing in the smoke. When they tried to rescue him, he apparently refused to leave until Throbin Hood finished. According to authorities, the man was found in a, quote, state of high sexual arousal, end quote. As they dragged him from the building, he reportedly screamed, quote, I have paid seven dollars, or I'm sorry, 750 euros for this, and I haven't finished yet, end quote. <laughs> quote, he only came out. After our people were battering against the locked cabin door, end quote, said fire department spokesman Martin Schneider, quote, once it was open, they grabbed him and dragged him to safety, end quote. The man was taken to the hospital and treated for smoke inhalation. That is the article. It is a very brief article, but feel free to follow up on this at your leisure. Again, that was deathandtaxesmag.com by way of Joe VX. What do you have to say to that, Tim? That sounds like uh, that might catch on. Ooh, yeah, I want some of that. Smoke and in- in- inhalation fucking. I mean... <laughs> I want some of that. I don't want to... I want I, Not only do I not want to breathe during it, but I... Definitely don't want to breathe after it for a period of time. I guess, I don't know, perhaps this is maybe like the greatest porn on the planet, right? I mean, forget paying seven fifty. I guess for us it would be closer to like $13 or whatever. But um, so, I mean, a movie so good that <laughs> you know something's wrong. You're coughing. You're going to die from smoke inhalation. And the movie's just that transfixing. I mean, <sighs> now I want to go to this place. To tell us what Robin Hood is about. <laughs> That's what we need. We need someone to tell us what Robin Hood is about. Johnny or Raphael. So that um, yeah, that was my news of the weird. 
sad. Ready for more sad <laughs> <laughs> news of the sad. <laughs> I don't know, I'm laughing. <laughs> so uh, shall we do some real news, sir? Yes, we must. All right, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> And first up, from DailyJewer.com, which is, of course, Daily Journal. Uh, and this is by way of Ashley from the entertainment section. Uh, Deadpool survives Batman v Superman. Zootopia tops $225 million. Yes, why another Batman movie? Because it's not just a movie. At a cost of $250 million, Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is history's most expensive promotion reel for a chain of 10 DC Comics tent poles. It's not so much a movie as a, quote, growth engine, end quote. Kevin Chuzahara, CEO type words, designed to restore Warner Brothers to its former dominance. Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice steamrolled past records, debuting to a gargantuan $170.1 million over the Easter weekend despite being pilloried by critics. Heads up, not going to fare a whole lot better here. The, that ranks as the top opening weekend for a DC Comics film, the best March launch ever, and the sixth biggest domestic opening weekend of all time. Um... And continuing on from there, because it breaks down the audience uh, demographics and everything, so please, if you would like to catch that information, head over to uh, dailyjewer.com and read up here. Skipping ahead, it turns out the Deadpool hang, hung in there. It made $1.685 million, um, and basically they were speculating it should come in or a little over $4 million for the weekend, bringing it up to approximately $348 million Cume. That would basically be um, making it about the second, or it's the it's the one of the highest grossing movies of all time, and if and twenty million dollars more, and it'll be literally the number one R-rated movie of all time. Um, not bad for. I thought Deadpool. it was the number one movie R-rated movie of all time. Uh, I want to say it's the number one international right now, but not the number one in North America yet. So it needs that other twenty million dollars. Uh, I read that in another article, but didn't make it to the actual news. Uh, finally, Zootopia um, grabbed um, another twenty-three million this weekend. So. Um, it's it's definitely huge, and it's already at nearly seven hundred million dollars worldwide. Um, so yeah, this is looking to. Um, I don't know if it's gonna. I don't know if it's actually gonna catch Frozen, but it's already past Tangled, Big Hero Six, Ratatouille. So I mean, it's gonna be pretty close. What do you think there, Tim? Uh, and again, this was just glossing over the last bit of this article, so if you'd like to read to fill in the gaps, please feel free to head over to this site uh, and check it out. Um, what do you think there, Tim? Well, uh, if, if it's okay with you, you were a little off on your Batman-Superman numbers. Because I, I read what you read earlier today, and mm-hmm. uh, actually this I found out about this whenever I was doing some pre-pre-show stuff from the rap. They say that the 
Uh, I guess from the article, Batman v Superman debut didn't break the Harry Potter word after all, which that's, that's what they kept talking about all yesterday and all this morning, that Batman v Superman broke the Harry Potter Warner Brothers record, but it says the Ben Affleck, Henry Cavill superhero epic wound up the 166.1 million, roughly 4 million under Warner Brothers estimate for the weekend on Sunday, according to a box office tracker dot com score that was enough ah. to drop it behind the boy wizard whose deathly hollows part two took in 169.1 million dollars in 2011 gotcha okay well for the for the record this article did not have anything to say about uh harry potter at all but there you go so okay so not quite 170 million but close enough for government work <laughs> um what are uh, so anyways though what what do you have sir other than you know, undoing all my fucking news, so I'm just going to cry and go home. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke about the theme song for Spectre a couple weeks ago, where Radiohead originally... Well, they didn't originally. Radiohead, though, they came up with a theme song for Spectre, but of course, obviously, their theme song didn't get chosen. Instead, it was the falsetto-sung <laughs> Oscar award-winning puking through the window uh what, what what was it called what's the guy's name I, I forget about the guy's name very talented singer from england i can't believe i forget his name he won the oscar for it writings on the wall that's the song not puking through the window but same thing but anyways yeah a radiohead like what, what i said radiohead came up with their own version but mgm decided now nah, we'll go with the writings on the wall one well I guess this is a trend with James Bond movies because according to DangerousMinds.net, the band Pulp, the British band Pulp, had their James Bond song rejected as well. And this would have been for the 1997 007 film Tomorrow Never Dies. Again, this is from DangerousMinds.net. Pulp, if you think about it, for about 10 seconds, would seem to be the very most perfect candidates ever to be picked to record a James Bond theme. In 1997, the Britpop band submitted Tomorrow Never Lies for Pierce Brosnan's second outing as 007, but the film was retitled Tomorrow Never Dies instead in their song shelved in favor of a mediocre Sheryl Crow number. Cocker was asked about what happened by James Bond fansite in my sex, and he said, quote, It was weird. They set up a kind of American Idol situation where they asked about nine different artists to come up with a Bond song. They listened to nine different attempts of working Tomorrow Never Dies into a lyric. We were told on a Wednesday that the deadline was Friday. Consequently, I was really pissed off when they went with Sheryl Crow instead, end quote. Tomorrow Never Lies eventually came out as the B-side to Pulp's Help the Aged single in 1997, their fifth consecutive top ten. It was later reissued as an extra track on the expanded edition of This Is Hardcore in 2006. And in this article here, you can actually check out the Tomorrow Never Dies opening with the Pulp song uh, added to it. It's it's a very interesting song. It's one of those to where it's like, man, if I it, when it came out, it would probably be a little bit better. Nowadays, it, it sounds a little bit dated, and I kind of think the Sheryl Crow one 
actually kind of fits over time. But who knows? Maybe it's because I'm used to the Sheryl Crow song as the opening to Tomorrow Never Dies. Matt, what do you think about this? Are you a fan of Pulp? Do you know about Pulp at all? They do that cool song, Common People. They're pretty big in uh, the late 80s, early to mid-90s. Uh, do you like the Sheryl Crow Tomorrow Never Dies opening song? Uh, Yeah, I don't care. Uh, it Honestly, it, it left so much of an impression on me that I don't even remember it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, but it, I, I do, I mean, that kind of stuff is really fascinating, especially uh, as much as I'm into Bond and everything, had I actually come across that article, I would have done exactly what you did and done the comparison and looked at it. I just did not see that article. So, uh, and um, I don't know. I do find that kind of stuff fascinating. But clearly it didn't hurt the box office of the movie, and I can see why they would, even at the time, would have gone with a more known quantity. Um, but, uh, yeah, weird. I just want to know who the seven other bands that got asked or the seven other artists that were asked to produce the song. I mean, so eventually, in another like 20 or 30 years, we might have like a hundred rejected Bond theme songs, <laughs> which would be very interesting to go back and listen to as like a compilation or something. Let's see here. Well, I've got two uh, more pieces of news to wrap us up here uh, from people.com by way of Michael Miller. Uh, Tom Green to help man arrested for failing to return a Freddy Got Fingered VHS from 2002. You heard that right. Tom Green is coming to the rescue of a man who was arrested for failing to return a VHS rental of his film, Freddy Got Fingered. James Myers of Concord, North Carolina, was put in handcuffs on Tuesday after police found an outstanding warrant for his arrest pertaining to an unreturned VHS rental from 2002, local station WSOC reported. The warrant came to light when Myers was pulled over for driving with a broken tail light while on his way to drop his daughter off at school. The moral of this story is not don't rent, you know, don't, don't rent Freddy Got Fingered on VHS in 2002. The moral of the story is always check your tail lights, right? Always make sure that they're working and your headlights are working so that, you know, that's how all these criminals get caught. They had a broken tail light. Uh, the officer said, uh, okay, I'm sorry here. Quote, the officer said, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's a warrant for your arrest from 2002. Apparently, you rented the movie Freddy Got Fingered and never returned it. I thought he was joking, end quote, Myers told WSOC-TV. Myers was allowed to continue on his way to his daughter's school after he promised to turn himself in later that day. When he returned to the station, he was placed in handcuffs and charged with a failure to return rental property, which is a misdemeanor punishable by a fine up to $200. Oh, how did that officer feel? Like, he had to uh, sit there and read. Oh, yeah. Uh, Freddie got... Oh, God. that's. Well, I'm pretty sure you <laughs> can tell exactly how good the officer was about it. Because he was like, yeah, just come back in later today so we can get this thing taken care of. Go ahead and take your kids to school. Um, and so Tom Green actually had tweeted about it because he found a... He found about it. And it says, I just saw this and I'm struggling to believe it is real. Um... And Green was quoted as saying, if it's 200 bucks, of course I'll pay it for him. Just the, just for the principle of the thing, end quote. And 
the only other thing that the article has to say is that Myers was actually a little bit upset because it's like the cops are focusing on a warrant for, you know, 200 bucks from 2002, but we can't solve more pertinent crimes. So I could feel that guy's frustration, but at least the at least the cop was cool about it, you know, didn't arrest the guy in front of his daughter and was like, yeah, just come down to the station later so we can get it figured out. And I mean, and like, did they really, did really, did they really need to put him in cuffs? It's like, oh, dude, just, yeah, have a seat while we <laughs> fill out this paperwork. I mean, the, clearly the guy's not going anywhere. He just voluntarily turned himself in over something that was from 14 fucking years ago. The daughter heard, Daddy, who <sighs> got fingered? You did what? Yeah. <laughs> Do you think? Do you think she turned to the officer and said, "Daddy, would you like some sausage?" <laughs> um, <laughs> I, anyway, um, and in probably what is the coolest, um, the coolest article I will read this month and perhaps this year, from uk.movies.yahoo.com by way of Ben Arnold. Crowdfunding site set up for Nazi Fast and Furious spinoff. <laughs> Fast Nine. <laughs> you know, not not the number nine, but the word nine. Uh, yes, there is. <laughs> it's called. All right, this is a crowdsourced movie. Uh, it's called Fast Nine. The Fast and the Fuhrer. <laughs> this is <laughs> this is a real thing, okay? A crowdfunding drive has been set up to make Fast 9, The Fast and the Fuhrer, a new episode in the high-octane movie series in which, quote, the team goes back in time to raise Hitler, end quote. Uh, launched by movie fan Jordan Vandina, he seems to have actually put in a fair amount of work into the project, posting a whole 71-page script for the movie. Um, it says, but despite the effort that's gone in, Bandina doesn't actually want any money. Quote, the campaign has no affiliation with Universal or anyone involved in the Fast and Furious franchise. Quote, end quote. He says in a disclaimer, um, quote, I have no power or authority to make this movie. Please don't donate to this, but feel free to read the script. End quote. So basically he just wants people to read this script. And the sad part is, um, well, I guess not sad. I guess it's kind of cool or funny. He put a target of $100 million up there. And he's actually got 55 bucks so far. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I um, thought that that was just really cool. If you'd like to see all the pictures and uh, stills and stuff that he's got up here, uh, check out the site again for UK movies. UK.movies.yahoo.com. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what, my news and the What's news. Vin Diesel's monologue's going to be like? What will... <laughs> I don't know. It's clearly not going to be like Mexico. Finally, we go back to the place where I'm free. Some out so they're going to go back and erase Hitler, but is he going to go back and save Paul Walker? Well, theoretically, Paul Walker's still alive inside the franchise, so... Well, that's true, I guess. Yeah. Well, yeah. well, Matt, before we close the news, I asked you earlier to check out... I know You said you already watched... You've seen the Ghostbusters trailer. Uh, the high-quality trailer that was. The well-put-together trailer mm-hmm. that was. 
Uh, I really mm-hmm. cannot wait to see Ghostbusters. And also the new, uh, the trailer for the remake of Ben-Hur. Did you get a chance to check that one out? I did, actually. I totally did. So, uh, yeah, what's your what's your question, sir? Mainly with Ghostbusters. With Ghostbusters, I hated that trailer. I thought it was a god-awful trailer. I don't understand why they pieced that trailer together like that before. And I know before anybody who listens to Kevin Smith's podcast, and I only, I only know he said this because... Uh, I listened to a sound clip of it, but I thought it, I mean, I thought about it before I listened to it, but the guy who, who put that trailer together, who edited that trailer together, either needs to be let go or he needs a talking, like somebody needs to say, hey dude, you need a, I mean, you gotta take a couple no, classes man, or something. You know, studio, man, studio execs told him to do no, that. No, I'm sure they did. They told the people to do they, that. So... But whoever's in charge of it needs to never do that again. Because you have a movie that has a strong fan base, or a franchise, I guess, a property with a, with a strong fr- uh, fan base, and then you're coming out with a movie that, unfortunately, it's controversial due to casting, due to who is directing it, and uh, the direction that they're taking the, the movie, and then they put out a trailer like this, which showcases, hopefully the worst bits of comedy straight out of 2003. And I'm kind of worried because what if they showed you the best bits of the movie in that trailer? Because you know, they they had to make sure, they they know, somebody was like, oh, you know, we got to put out the best trailer we can and this is what they came up with. Well, it's interesting that you wanted to talk about this because there was actually a big... um, there was a big thing on Reddit about it in the, in movies and stuff uh, in the movie subreddit, and one of the things that was out there was: Is the Ghostbusters reboot hate justified in your opinion? And um, I, I have there's something it's kind of lengthy, and I apologize, but I I mean it really gets to the heart of the whole thing, um, and so I would like to read it mainly because I wrote it. So haha, yeah. um, I say to answer the question in a word: Yes. But the reasons why are quite varied. Sony is desperate for big wins right now. They have noticed how the reboot train seems to get the sheeple on board because we are at a cultural touchstone where the ability to bring nostalgia is tantamount to originality. That in and of itself is most likely the greatest culprit here, as what the cinematic world desperately needs most is originality. However, since reboots and sequels seem to make money based on known quantities, and Sony really needs those wins, they are banking on yet another reboot. Another reason that we get these reboots is that for better or worse, depending on your point of view and or the film's ability to age well, the vast majority of today's moviegoers will simply not go back and watch movies that are old. The word is subjective, but considering that we are looking at our third Spider-Man series in 15 years, 2002 for Sam Raimi's Spider-Man versus 2017's upcoming Spider-Man, also from Sony, can you see how this problem compounds itself past the 20-year mark? The first Ghostbusters film was released in 1984. While it was a cultural and cinematic milestone, all you have to do is watch one of those kids-slash-teen-react videos to understand that they just aren't very likely to go back and watch, let alone like, a movie from 32 years ago. This leads into the next problem, which is that for reasons that could bring its own discussion, studio heads can't seem to understand the value that proper writing and casting had on the original film. 
Because we live in an age where the preponderance of the population seems, seemingly needs to be spoon-fed, there's no room for nuance in characterization or subtlety in story. The easiest example from Ghostbusters is, of course, 2016's Leslie Jones versus 1984's Ernie Hudson. The early 80s was, a, was still a pretty rough time economically for us, and the idea of a black man needing a job desperately enough that he'll go work for the Ghostbusters and say, quote, if there's a steady paycheck in it, I'll believe anything you say, end quote, is not just believable, but relatable. People understood this context, which is a credit to the writers, Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis, and the studio as they greenlit The Unknown Quantity, a supernatural ghost-hunting comedy at the time. Said unknown quantity brought its own stereotypes with which to draw humor, Ray and Egon. There were no need for any others. Today, because everyone has at least heard of the Ghostbusters and studio heads believe that no one really wants to think for themselves, they either go for the lowest common denominator or tie the hands of the writers so that every comedic stereotype and or trope is played out in the film and then regardless of the content or quantity is blasted out in the trailer, resulting in the character we see in Leslie Jones. Finally, at least for this argument, is the global concern. Everyone likes to think in their own geographic context, which is predominantly Western-influenced. Take that with as much of a grain of salt as you'd like, as this is not a value judgment, just the way we've always understood our movies. Today, as more and more of the world rises up economically, regardless of how small the baby steps are, we find ourselves more interconnected than ever before, and movies aren't made just for us anymore they are green lit with the international markets in mind we have less than five years before china becomes the biggest film market in the world therefore considering all the stereotypes that the world has come to expect from our culture which they have been consuming in greater and greater quantities over the last 30 years and it's no wonder that we see what we consider to be tired at every turn We've seen it done to death, but the rest of the world hasn't. And so we get reboots that don't relate, but still could make money. All that being said, the trailer really did try to do some things right. It showcased the ghosts as hyper-extensions of their 1984 counterparts, which I liked. It showed Slimer, which I also liked. It properly referenced most of the original equipment in an updated way, another win. And it showed us that there are certain aspects in the tone, i.e. the sliming, the mass of ghosts in the streets, that will try to match the beat of the original while still being relevant. Unfortunately, the writing and the characterization seem to be overwhelmingly piss poor, which completely undoes all that feel-good nostalgia which made the original great. The hate comes from the disappointment that yet another unneeded remake has been gutted, and that's not just reasonable, but understandable. Sadly, until enough people vote with their wallet, this is never going to stop. End rant. Sorry, that went on for way too long, but... It was, I just... Well, that was lovely. And you wrote that? I did. What are you, some... smart person? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, know, I, I know you were just reading the article, but whatever the direction the studio wanted to take the movie is totally fine with me. The only issue for me is the trailer... You know, kind of like what what you were talking about in the trailer. For the most part, I think that is a pretty good way of explaining all that stuff. It's either that or some dude was hired, somebody was asked to, you know, to create the trailer, and they did, and they didn't have enough time to go back and 
redo it completely. Have you seen the fan edit? Uh, yeah. Did you yeah, see the fan like, like the one minute fan edit? Yeah, it's like fifty seconds. Yeah, 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 where they got rid of everything and they added. The sad part is, is that I watched the the trailer, the full two minute and twenty second trailer, or whatever, and then and knowing all that, I went and watched the fan re edit that, and and I I still want to see it. Like I already know it's terrible, and knowing all that, watching that, it made me excited to want to see that movie. Um, well, I hope I hope I mean I'm going to see it regardless. <laughs> So well, of course we're going to see. It. We, we have we to. have to. Yeah, yeah. But uh, um, but yeah. So okay. So then we move on to Ben Hur for a quick moment. I know we're running way behind on time. Eh, that's um, all right. Let, let me sum up. Was it worthy? No. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. Moving. But on. then we but, but then we had the Ben Hur remake where you watch the trailer and it's directed by um Tim, uh I meant to pull it up to uh, Timur Burkov. Uh, he directed, mm-hmm. uh, I think, the last uh, movie he made, at least here for the an American audience, is Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter. He did Wanted. He did the Night Watch movies, Night Watch and Day Watch, both very good. It, it, and he's coming out with this, the remake of Charlton Heston's Ben-Hur, where it's sure. a special effects ex- extravaganza. It's all over the place. It kind of feels like your run-of-the-mill type of movie and i really don't think even how they cut this trailer it doesn't really sell the movie i will say that i got the feeling that they were that they cut this trailer to make people reminiscent of gladiator um and i don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing because as the trailer went on the cut and the storytelling got better because at the beginning it's just really piss poor you know blatantly obvious cgi um and then they and then they stop that bullshit to then cut to the heart of let's tell you what this story is about um and when they did that and then focused more on the acting that for me at least made the trailer bearable, and I think will get people interested in this particular remake. I don't know that the quality is going to be all there at, at the end of the day, especially considering that the original Ben-Hur, that shit was straight up real. I mean, there was no way to fake it back then. Um, I believe somebody died during the filming of the chariot scenes. So, I mean, real. It doesn't get any more real than that. And here, of course, you know it's going to be all CGI and everything. Except the crucifixions. They actually crucified Jesus. (laughs) They spared no expense. That's right. No expense. They actually waited for an Easter, grabbed Jesus, and said, hey, can we just borrow you for a few minutes? (laughs) We're going to do a reenactment. Wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. It'll be great. And when we and, and then we can use that. And then we can reuse it in a Coen Brothers film. It'll be fantastic, trust me. No, but seriously, uh so I can see that they definitely shaped this trailer once they got away from the stupid fucking CGI like at the beginning. Oh my god, those ships were fucking terrible. And I was like and I and I was completely like lost at that point. You lost me, but of course, you know, it's for the show, we were talking about it and everything. So I'm hanging into the end. And when they focused on the actual storytelling, it seemed to be better. Um, and so I think it will do a decent job of at least least getting butts in the seats. Whether or not it'll do anything beyond its opening weekend is going to depend on the movie itself. It's just that 
this reliance on CGI to do everything. You know, and it's not just the reliance on CGI. It's also the reliance of the sexual voice of Morgan Freeman, who will probably be narrating (laughs) the entire movie. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but still. So, again, so many people don't know about the original Ben-Hur, or they just know that there was a Ben-Hur, right? So these people will be, at least with this trailer, I think a little bit more inclined to watch it, but people like you and me who are like, but but you've got to watch the original. You, you, you know, we'll sit back and scratch our heads going, why don't we just release, re-release this shit in the cinemas just for shits and giggles and just try it just a few times and see how it goes. Really clean it up. Really get the audio and the and the video really cleaned up. Make it so that it's a spectacle. Maybe again, that's what they're doing. Know? Maybe they're releasing this trailer just to get the people there. And they're just going to show old Ben-Hur. <laughs> that would be really cool. I don't know how people would necessarily like the bait and switch. Um, but, I mean, seriously. I mean, let's... Why don't they just once or twice... Uh, like they did with um, Maltese Falcon, right? Get a few more of those going, but don't just don't just have it be quiet and off to the side. Where if you happen to listen to an obscure podcast like us, and somebody talks about it, or if you happen to vaguely come across a Variety article, then you know because the majority of those kinds of people are already aficionados or already art house people or people who like that kind of stuff and are already in the know and going to go see it. But if you actually give it a good shot and help people understand why it's cool and really bring back this stuff and make it the grand spectacle that it was when it initially came out, no, it's not going to make $500 million. But you might be surprised and it could make 50 or 60 or 70 and Jesus Christ, how's that? All you got to do is spend $10 million in advertising. You come away with 40 or $50 million, and you literally didn't have to do anything. I mean, the work was already done. So, uh, I don't know. I Yeah. I just... For fuck's sake, people, go see Charlton Heston. Go see him right now. Go, go check him out. <laughs> Pause it and come back. <laughs> and that's my news. All right. Well, after that, we will then drift uh, literally into our uh, Was It Worthy? All right. So the Was It Worthy again, Witness from 1985. It won Best Original Screenplay and also Best Film Editing at the 58th Academy Awards. I apologize. I said 68th last week, but it was actually 58th. Um, so for Best Original Screenplay, Witness was up against Back to the Future, Brazil, The Official Story, and The Purple Rose of Cairo. Now, um, I would have to say that between Back to the Future and Purple Rose of Cairo, there's just no way. I think that Back to the Future was such an amazingly original story for its day. Um, And look at it 30 years later, right, guys? I mean, we already can tell just exactly where it's landed culturally in in our lexicon. Um, and in the zeitgeist. So I think that putting your money on Back to the Future would not have been a bad idea back then. However, because I can see why a movie of that ilk would not necessarily have been seen in the highest regard, Purple Rose of Cairo, for me, would have also been a grand choice. Now, I know that because of my experience with Brazil, even now, I would have to 
take that out of the running, but I would guess that Tim would probably be in the running between Brazil and Purple Rose of Cairo as well. So in terms of best original screenplay, no. Witness, no. Should not, should not have won. Um, in terms of the editing, which Witness also won, it was up against a chorus line. It was up against Out of Africa, Prizzy's Honor, and Runaway Train. And honestly, I don't know if I would have been able to choose between Out of Africa or Chorus Line because holy crap, are those movies really amazing. And while they're also niche for this time period, and I don't know, and I wouldn't really be able to, to truly say how much better they have aged versus Witness. I can say that either one of those, I think, should have won over Witness. So, no, Witness was not worthy. And, of course, remember, that's the 1985 Harrison Ford uh, thriller where he goes and pretends to be Amish for a couple weeks. (laughs) And that's it. That's the whole story. He's not trying to protect anybody. (laughs) He just woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm going to go to Lancaster and give up a lot go, of stuff. I'm going to go hang out with that chick. I'm going to go hang out with that chick from Top Gun. <laughs> see what's up. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly McGillius, by the way, what's her name? Um, what do you say, Tim? Well, one thing for folks to understand, if they don't already with Witness, is that when it came out, it was a very original movie. It's kind of your run-of-the-mill type of like witness protection type of story where you got a cop who's trying to keep, tr- uh, trying to keep somebody safe while somebody else is out on the hunt for them. In this case, it pertains to the Amish community. He's trying to save this Amish boy who witnessed this murder, so they know, he knows that, they're, that the, the, the people, or the crooked cops, are out to kill the kid and the mom, so he's going to go and stay with them and protect them. And that's what he does. And during that time, he establishes this relationship with Kelly McGillis's Amish lady mother character. And... At the time, I understand the the appeal. Harrison Ford was like the Gary Cooper of the 80s. He was a go-to actor. We talked about this before, that this was the first movie that Harrison Ford really got to act dramatically in. So that's another reason why he was nominated for the Academy Award uh, for Best Actor. But this movie was very interesting. Uh, I watched uh, a very interesting behind-the-scenes documentary some time ago of Witness. They were talking about Peter Weir, and Peter Weir made like five Australian movies back-to-back in Australia. And this was his first full-fledged American film. And so he brought his own perspective, uh, not only his filmmaking perspective, but his perspective on American culture to this filmmaking process. And whereas um, Harrison Ford, I mean, he was the one that could closely or had closely played anything that resembled his character in Witness, his cop character. But he he had no idea what to or, or neither like Kelly McGillis or any of those other Viggo Mortensen even, you know, they have no idea what the Amish people were like. And so Peter Weir brought in a new and different fresh dynamic that maybe other uh, well-known American filmmakers couldn't bring to the table. And that makes for a very interesting movie experience with Witness. And I think it's a good movie, but if you compare it to Out of Africa, if you compare it to Preetzi's Honor, Kiss of the Spider Woman, you can't really compare it. You know, Witness, yeah, it was nominated for Best uh, Score, but it did not win for Best Score. Out of a- John Barry won for Out of Africa. It doesn't hold up. 
the movie is dated. It was unique for the time, but it's not unique now. But if you look at Out of Africa, and if you look at uh, The Color Purple, all those do hold up. And I think ultimately, Sidney Pollack winning over Peter Weir for Best Director, and Out of Africa winning Best Picture over Witness, and The Color Purple even, was the best call. I mean, I think for the most part, uh, Witness got what it deserved. It got the recognition. However, for Best Screenplay, I do not believe it deserved that. I do believe it should go to The Purple Rose of Cairo. Brazil is a very interesting film and has a great screenplay, but The Purple Rose of Cairo, I don't know the last when the last time was when you saw it, Matt, but it, the movie, every time I watch it, it feels like the first time I watch it. It makes me so happy and so fluttery on the inside. It's just a wonderful script with great humor and great romance. Witness has a lot of awkwardness that was brought on to it due to uh, due to the time period and the length of time since the movie had come out. So overall, was Witness worthy? It, it depends how you look at it. I think no. Uh, was it worthy for the nominations? Yet yeah. For the time, yes. Now, not so much. So it, it depends how you look at it. I, if, if we're strictly going on for its time, yes, totally. So... I really don't know how to answer. So was it worthy for what was it worthy of winning either of those awards? Um no. Because that's what it's 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 based on the award that it won, not that it was nominated. No. Except except film editing. I can see it winning. I I think film ed- editing was its worthy nomination, but not screenplay. So it was worthy of being nominated for film editing. No, no, it, so no. It sorry, was it was not. It was worthy for winning best editing. Okay, but it was not worthy for winning best screenplay. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. So, wrapping it up, then, witness for me not worthy at all on either one, and for Tim, it was worthy of the film editing only. Um, next week, we're introducing a new category. Um, it's called Best of the Worst. So we're going to take a look at uh, just an absolutely all-around terrible movie and decide if it's one of the best of the worst movies we've ever seen. So generally, uh, I guess we're going to we're, we're judging this on whether or not it truly is so bad it's good or if it's just so bad it's bad. Um, the movie is 1987's Hard Ticket to Hawaii. And please, for the love of God, go look up this movie. And if nothing else, check out the Frisbee scene on YouTube. Just look up Hard Ticket to Hawaii Frisbee, search that, and you will not be disappointed. Um, and yes, so that's what we're going to be looking at for next week. And now we come to the movies, do we not, sir? Movie on. <laughs> All right, folks, here we go. It's... The movies. And this week's movies are Pee-wee's Big Holiday, Experimenter, and Batman v Superman: Dawn of Justice. I am presuming we're going to hang on to that one to the end. So, where would you like to start, sir? How about exp- 
Experimenter. <laughs> Experimenter. A 2015 American biographical drama film. It's written and directed by Michael Almereda. And it is based on the... It has its roots in the 1961 Milgram experiment on obedience and basically follows the story of Stanley Milgram. Um, from that time of his experiment through the rest of his life and his other various experiments and how that primary experiment basically dictated not just his career but the rest of his life from 1961 until 1984 when he passed away. Um, the film stars Peter Sarsgaard and Winona Ryder and also has wonderful... Uh, cameos from people like Anthony Edwards and John Leguizamo and features smaller roles from people like Jim Caffigan. Um, and this is a really interesting thing. Now, the if, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, 1961 obedience experiment, basically the idea is they had two people uh, who met up. These are total strangers. One of them picks to be the teacher. The other picks to be the student or the learner. The learner is put into a semi-soundproof room where they send signals to answer questions. Now, they're visual signals for the teacher, but otherwise it's a semi-soundproof room, so the teacher can't see in, the learner can't see out. Whenever the learner gets one of the questions wrong, they're delivered a shock. The shock goes from 45 volts to 450 volts, okay? And just for the record, in your house, your voltage is 110. And anybody who's ever been shocked um, in some form or fashion from a household outlet, um, that was 110. So can you imagine 450? Uh, the, the teacher is given a shock on the arm at 45 volts so that they can understand the idea behind it, uh, and, you know, get a little thing from there. What they don't know is that they're actually, the teacher is really the only subject of the experiment because it's an experiment on obedience. These people have been paid for their time and they're told up front, you've been paid. There's no way you can get this back. It's yours under no circumstances. Will you forfeit that? Um, so you can do whatever you want and go whenever you want, whatever. And as the, the shocks get worse and worse, the person in the booth is an actor who's in on it and is basically pretending to be in pain and shouting through the walls and stuff. And so the idea is to see just exactly how far along someone will go under the guise of, well, you have to, we're telling you, you have to, because that's the experiment. And at what point will people stand up and say, no, this is wrong, and get up and leave? And it's shocking because 65% of people go all the way. And this was kind of an interesting idea and very controversial for its day because at the time there were people uh, like Adolf Eichmann and stuff who were on trial for war crimes. And these people were saying uh, from World War II for the Holocaust. And they're like, look... I was just doing what I was told. I'm not a bad guy. I, you know, I may have signed off on the death warrants for six million people, but they told me to do it. Who was I to say no? And that's what this experiment is at its heart. Because as they found, 65% of people went all the way to the end. 450 volts over and over and over again. Because they were told they had to. And so they were just doing what they were told. And so you can see how something, how, how a, uh, an experiment like this could become a global phenomenon. And so it did, and it defined his career. And 
on and on. Now, the film itself does a, um, does an accurate job of portraying this and its implications on the rest of Milgram's life, and it also spends a lot of time breaking the fourth wall so that Milgram can actually talk to you. Now, the one thing that I liked about that was you really lose Peter Sarsgaard in this, and you just begin to believe that he has embodied Stanley Milgram. Even if you don't know anything about it, or I mean, you just believe that this is a man talking to you, and he's explaining to you the inner workings of his mind and how it relates to his work and his life. The problem that I have is that the stylization of these things while could be really cool were often very very much hit or miss and there are also a lot of stylizations that they do for instance when um milgram and his future wife uh played again by winona they go to meet one of his mentors and it's re and, and so they're in a car driving and it's completely obvious that it's the old sixties motif of sitting in the car and they're just driving in front of a screen that's black and white and playing uh scene of, you know, just the road moving behind you. And so I like, for instance, I like that, right? It kind of establishes the scene and really makes you feel like you're in, you know, a sixties kind of a film. Well, they, they don't stop there. They then translate that into the house. So you can clearly tell they're on a stage, like at a, like in a Broadway play. And then the backdrop is just a still frame or a movie frame of the inside of a house. So, in one instance, looks really cool, and in another instance, completely breaks immersion and is just a, clearly an artistic choice that just didn't work very well. And so the movie often does this, as even especially in the characterization of Milgram himself, as they move into the 70s and stuff, and he has aged, and now he's like got a beard and stuff like that. And it's really obvious that this is a fake beard. Um, you know, so again... Whereas you can see the characterization and the acting is really good, a lot of the design and production things ugh, just really break that immersion. The movie itself is really, really interesting, though. Um, I give this one a three, but I think the artistic design and production choices uh, were just not really the best. So there you go. What do you got, Tim? You know, I'm in the same boat with you. If the audience is interested in the subject matter, then I think the audience will be intrigued by this movie because they really get into the science of his experiments and whatnot. And there's a lot of explaining and trying to get the audience to understand where he is coming from. And I thought it was very fascinating because I actually uh, looked into the study a couple years ago and it was kind of nice seeing it play out in a movie form. I'm to I totally agree. I actually I did a paper on this uh, like three years ago in English. So um, I actually went back and looked up the paper, and I was like, "Holy crap, this is really cool!" So, <laughs> oh, did it make you want to change anything in your paper? No, it, it didn't actually, because the uh, big portion of the paper, um, the, the the idea behind the paper was when. When your morals become compromised, that's when obedience has to stop. You, and that's, and that's, that's really the trick of it. And I think that's one of the points that the movie touches on too. So yeah, pretty cool. 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and and you can tell that the actors as well as the director, they share a fondness for the story and for the man especially and you can just tell that they were they were having a good time having all this play out because the movie just has this kind of upbeatness to it that works very well i mean the movie never does feel boring i thought it was wonderfully acted and played out my only complaint for the movie i share the same complaint with matt is that i just really did not like pretty much most of the artistic directions that the movie took. It's never consistent, and it doesn't complement the story in any way. Maybe calling them artistic directions really isn't the best way to say, but like what Matt was saying, the use of the black and white while they're driving, which, you know, is is okay, but the thing is is that it shows them outside other times, and it's not black and white. Or, you know, it shows them in people's houses... Other than his mentor's house, and it's not black and white. He's just in a regular house. And there are these other moments where you keep seeing him go into the hallway outside of where his lab is, or outside of where his experimenting room is. And sometimes there's this big elephant behind him, and you, I, at least I don't remember them coming up with any reasoning for the big elephant behind him, walking behind him. You know, and so you kind of notice them kind of doing the same thing over and over again every so often. And sometimes it it makes sense and it works, but other times it does not. And that is the only problem I have with this movie. And unfortunately, it's a shame, really, because you know it was probably just a handful of people where, you know, they were probably insistent, like, hey, man, this looks so cool. This would look really cool if we did this. Well, unfortunately, it didn't pay off. However, I liked it a little bit more than Matt. I'm going to stick with 3.5 out of 5. This is strictly for the performance and the story itself. So 3.5 out of 5. It's on Netflix, so do go check it out. Sweet. All right, so then I guess we're going to Pee-wee's Big Holiday. Yeah, let's let's do that. <laughs> okay. Pee-wee's Big Holiday, 2016 American comedy film directed by John Lee and written by Paul Rubens and Paul Roost. And, of course, it stars... Paul Rubens as Pee Wee Herman, and um, also in a in a very fun, stylized extended cameo would be Joe Mangalin, Man, Man, Manganello. I think is how he pronounces it. I'm sorry, I'm I, I didn't catch that. <laughs> Ma- Magnanello, Maganel- Maganello, Magnishnello, Man- yeah, Manganello, Ma- Ma- Manganese. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> So, all right, now, the, okay, so, so this is a film, you have to, you have to understand something about Pee Wee, is that Paul Rubens is 63 years old, okay, so the fact that he still looks like he does, now, it's pretty obvious it's a hairpiece this time, but, you know, whatever, um, just pretty amazing. I mean, he looks damn good for 63 years old. And something that I um, appreciate a lot more in this film that I did not like, even though I didn't really like Big Top Pee-wee, is that each of the films, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Pee-wee's uh, Big Top Pee-wee, and Pee-wee's Big Holiday, is that they all exist in their own universe, right? They're all... None of them have anything to do with the other. Now... I will say that it was kind of cool to see um, uh, 
Diane uh, Salinger, she or, or Salinger, she was the waitress from Pee Wee's Big uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure when it, with Simone, I think her name was in the in that movie, and they're in the dinosaur, and her boyfriend comes and chases Pee Wee away. Um, so that was really cool to see her. But aside from that, I really like how each one of these little adventures and these things stand as their own individual story with no tie-ins to anything else so that they can just focus on the fun. And this one hits the right notes of nostalgia with the right notes of silliness and the right notes of fun. Uh, so your kids, so kids will definitely enjoy it all the way around. Something that my wife could not get over, but I was able to get past, even though I noticed it the entire time. Again, he's 63 years old. So his voice is just not as good as it used to be. Um, I don't know if he smoked a lot or whatever, but I mean, it's, he, he, he doesn't do that. <laughs> he doesn't do that hardly at all anymore. And the <laughs> little kids, it kind of gets a little grainy like this by the, you know, instead of being really smooth and clear. Um, again, kids aren't going to notice it at all, but I mean, I loved that when I was growing up. So what are you going to do? Um, that being said, this movie is as as remarkably simple as it is, and as much as I laughed in the movie, um, there are nostalgia overloads in it, and I and and that hurts it a lot, as well as the fact that um, it's sometimes too simple, even for kids. Like the idea, as much fun as it is, is that Joe Magnello uh, gets upset because basically. Pee-wee exists in this one little city of Fairville, and he never wants to leave, and he never wants to go anywhere, and he never goes on any adventures of any kind. And Joe Mag uh, Maganello shows up, and they instantly hit it off. And like they have this special connection, and they form an instant friendship. And Joe Maganello invites him to his birthday party, and then by the end of the movie, as Pee-wee's working his way there, Joe gets upset when Pee-wee's not there right away. So you have these kinds of things where... Like, you get it, but it's still overdone. And even to the point where kids might kind of feel like it's overdone. Um, but a lot of times, even that, even though they're doing that, it's still fun. And again, like the nostalgia stuff, it's very, like, Fairville is, is literally like, you know, Pleasantville, the movie and stuff. So you have all those things that kind of feel overboard, but Honestly, it still hits the right notes, and I still laughed a lot. So, um, I, at the end of the day, I give this one 3.75. I can't, I can't give it a four as much as I really enjoyed it. Um, but I still really liked it. Uh, it was definitely a fun ride. Made me appreciate the Pee Wee of old. Um, but you still can't quite go home again. 3.75 out of five. What do you got there, Tim? So I'm kind of at a crossroads with this movie because overall I did not care for it. I thought it was short on laughs and there was an abundance of, I think, misses and uh, a number of, of gags that felt kind of lazy. Kind of like the, the opening segment when he's getting ready and he's, you know, everything is kind of like doing the work for him and whatnot. I thought it, I thought the, it was the, not necessarily him and it was not the ideas I will say that the movie is not short on ideas. It has some great ideas, and I think the writing is just fine. I just don't think the director was not necessarily appropriate, but maybe not seasoned enough. I did a quick 
online search, and it looks like he this is the, the first thing he's ever directed, according to, I think, uh, IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, whatever I just looked at. So I think the movie could have used somebody a little bit more intact, I guess, to direct this movie, because this movie had some great nuances in the screenwriting and in the performance, but visually it lacked any nuance. I think the editor should get a lot of credit because stuff like the balloon scene where you actually see him pulling out the balloon and blowing up the balloon and then releasing the air little by little, I laughed my ass off. Why? Because that is effective. You don't see comedy movies that much anymore that they can actually do gags like that where there's no cutaways, there's no reaction shots. The camera is just there and you see the gag play out because it is well choreographed and it is well performed. There are, I think, uh, maybe two times where I got a good laugh and maybe two or three nice little chuckles, like his really squeaky little, you know, his high-pitched scream that he does is really funny, but even that can be overkill at times. Yeah, and you know, that's all I'm going to say. There's really not much more to say. I just thought, I thought story-wise, the movie felt short, incredibly short, not necessarily the length. It didn't really feel as much as a as an adventure to me, but that could have just been because of the directing. So I'm, uh, and that, that's why I'm saying that I really don't know what to give it. It's definitely going to be a two-something. So I am probably just going to sit at a 2.25 out of 5. All right. Well, that is what it is. So I think then that um, we're basically left with nothing else. But it's time for (laughs) Superman, right? (laughs) Batman v Superman. So here we go. Batman v Superman. Dawn of Justice. 2016 American superhero film. And of course, it's Batman and Superman. This is uh, the sequel Two Man of Steel and the precursor to the Justice League movies also gives the introductions. Uh, and as far as I'm concerned, there's really no way to accurately portray uh, or actually portray to accurately review this movie in a spoiler free mode. So we're I'm letting you know up front spoilers because um Let's face it, the vast majority of people have already seen this movie. This is the week. It's, by the time it comes out, the movie will have been out for damn for over a full week. So that's your warning. <clears throat> um, you get your first glimpses of Wonder Woman, of course, everybody knew. But you also get your first glimpses of Cyborg, The Flash, and Aquaman. So, you know, again, filming the tentpole of the Justice League and all that good stuff. Um. So basically, this film is takes place um, actually kind of during the finale of Man of Steel and then moving on 18 months later to an incident where uh, Superman rescues Lois and it causes an international incident and what the fallout of that must be in terms of the continuing role of what people think of Superman, how he should help the world, what America has to say about it. And the machinations of Lex Luthor and also why um, why Bruce Wayne slash Batman doesn't like Superman. Why there needs to be Batman v Superman. So, okay. I rewatched Man of Steel going into this movie. 
And I was pumped. I initially, way back when, episode 29 of the SLS cast was when we reviewed Man of Steel. Um, I gave this movie a 3.5 back then. I was a little harder on it from the front end. Uh, I maintained my, my critiques of the back end of the film. Uh, if I'm mean, just splitting it in half, but I think I was a little too hard on it. I, I think if I had watched it and reviewed it today as, and, and then put that review in, then I would probably have bumped it up to a 3.75, maybe even a four. Uh, I think there that if I want to be nitpicky enough, I could keep it at 3.5, but there's a lot more that I understand now and a lot of nuances I didn't catch in the first viewing. So, you know, hey, we're not we're not all perfect. Um, and so I was really pumped to see this movie. And I go in and I'm like, huh. And it go I mean, right from the get-go. So the movie opens with Batman's backstory, which I thought was eloquently done because they only use, they don't really talk much and they only use the credits. It's just the opening credits. So kudos to them for really just kind of flashpoint. Okay, come on. We know his parents get shot. He falls down the well and finds the Batcave, right? So these are kind of well-established things that we, we should know. Um, we then immediately move to special swirly floaty bat boy uh, coming out of the well, thanks to the magic power of the bats. And I'm like, come on, seriously? And then it's like, and then the dream. I go to the white light and the white light's a good thing. I'm like, oh, so we're starting off with a memory dream sequence. That's nice. And this is something that is heavily, heavily reiterated throughout the film and is just such a bad idea um because they were really trying so damn hard to separate themselves from the way marvel does it and in some ways i can appreciate that and i think they kind of did do a little bit better of a job than marvel generally does um and because they were really trying also to establish so much so that they don't have to do origin stories for these people they dropped a shit ton of foreshadowing in there. And that's what the deal with all the dreams are about. Um, so, again, spoilers, 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 spoilers. Darkseid is the bad guy in the next... I guess when the Justice League comes together, Darkseid's going to be the bad guy. And so they are doing an assload of foreshadowing to set that stuff up. So like when Batman has his dream and he's Batman in the desert, right? Um, then uh, you're seeing all this weird-ass fucking shit. And again, it's all stuff that's supposed to lay out the groundwork for Darkseid for people who know but people who don't know, it's like, why the fuck am I watching this? Also, who the fuck is Iron Man dude popping out of the goddamn portal in my dreams? Well, that's supposed to be the Flash. Because some of the Flash's power is time travel. Either by technology, which is what you see in the movie, or also because he can literally run so fast, he can go faster than time itself. Yeah, alright, whatever. Um... So they do all of these things to try and really set this stuff up. There's a great Vulture article if you want to go into more detail about it. Um, it is by 
It's vulture.com and it comes to us by way of Abraham Reisman. Uh, it's called Explaining Batman's Odd Dream and Batman v Superman. So all of the backstory, everything that you need to know to set that stuff up um, is there. Also, if you have Netflix, um, Justice League War, which is actually an animated film. It's, it's an hour and a half long and it's PG-13, so it's not for kids in and of itself. Um, actually does a really good job because all the stuff in the DC Extended Universe is kind of coming from the New 52 breakout. And so Justice League War actually is the origin of the Justice League coming together against Darkseid. So if you watch that and then go back and watch Batman v Superman, or if you have a good memory from Batman v Superman and then ju make, watch Justice League War, a lot of that stuff is going to start clarifying. Uh, if you haven't seen Batman v Superman and you're listening to this because you like spoilers, then, hey, go watch Justice League War on Netflix first. Go see Batman v Superman. So they do all of this kind of stuff to try and give you so many great hints and so many Easter eggs and so, and so much foreshadowing so that you can be totally prepped and know about these characters and get their little glimpses and stuff. But they do it at the expense of helping you understand it. You don't understand what you're looking at and you're just virtually lost the whole fucking time. I knew a lot of this shit going in and I didn't even understand the goddamn Batman dream. Okay, I'm like, why the fuck am I seeing dark side bats? What the what do we have Superman Superman army for? Cuz it's future Superman. Right? Uh which again, all spring off spring springboards from new 52 and I'm like, so what what? So yeah, so I mean even then it doesn't help all a lot uh or as much. The other side of that is is that we have these really weird characterizations. I'm sorry. This is the worst fucking Lex Luthor ever, okay? Um, again, if you do the a available in ADHD, uh, Johnny made a really good point about Jesse. Um, oh, good Lord. Uh, Jesse Eisenberg's characterization, but it makes sense when you know that, but it's still not good enough. Um, this is the... Ter there are certain core tenets of a character that you just don't fuck with, okay? You you want to update a story and you want to make things new and you want to bring something that's fresh and... and uh, fine, cool, that's great. Update things and, and bring make it relevant for today and do a good job of shooting it. Fine, wonderful, go for it. But you don't mess with certain things. Certain things like... Some, something that's his core to Superman is that basically he is, he's an idealistic hayseed, right? Um, that's not to say that that's a bad thing, but they keep that core, that part of Superman intact. Batman has demons that he has to fight. Now, if you want to talk about the way he presents those demons and fights those demons, that's fine. But he has those demons that he has. To, you don't mess with that core. Lex Luthor. The core to Lex Luthor is power. He wants power. It's not. He doesn't hate Superman because of daddy issues. He doesn't hate Superman because Superman's a god. No. Lex is all about power. Absolute power. And Superman has more power than he does. He wants that power for himself. And if he can't have that power, then he wants to destroy that power. 
All of his nefarious deeds and everything have nothing to do with greed or money. You can write that any way you want, but it's about power. And instead, what they did was they basically said, well, since we've gone and pushed Joker off to fucking uh, Suicide Squad, we need a Joker now. And they made fucking Lex Luthor into the goddamn Joker. And what the actual fuck, people? Just a terrible characterization. Terrible. Um, I also did not like that... As much as I appreciated the idea of musical themes and musical cues, it was evident that they have, that they created an imperial march for the DC, for this, for this universe, and they created the imperial march to be Lex Luthor's theme. And while I thought the culmination of the theme at the end, when Lex and Soups are on the platform together, like that aspect sounded good, the buildups, in the lead ups into that swell are just really annoying and again break immersion and take away from it they don't add to it so that even makes that part of it worse so when you add to that this just complete loss of understanding and breaks from this dream sequences and stuff because there's several different dreams soups has a dream as well um you just, it makes it that much harder to enjoy the things that they did right. And the things that they did right were actually creating real tension and believable ways in the world we have today of understanding how Bruce Wayne and Clark Kent would not like each other and how that would translate into Batman and Superman actually uh also not liking each other and so all of those things taken away from it it makes it really hard to like this movie um i i with with there are good things there is good action there's too much reliance on cgi just like there was last time in Man of Steel. Um, God. I wanted to give this a 3.25, um, but even now as I say it, I can't. I give it a 3. I can say that I liked it, especially for the things that it was trying to do, and I liked, I really, really liked how they built the story and made it so that it was plausible for Batman and Superman to understand one another, not like one another, but be able to work together eventually. But there's just way too much going on that requires you to either ignore it or forgive it for not understanding, or you have to have too much precognition, pre yeah, precognition um, for it to play out. So, also, fuck Lex Luthor. This is the worst fucking Lex Luthor. So, three stars. Three. I'm sorry, Tim, but that took way fucking too long, too. But three stars. Bring us home, sir. And Matt was the one that did like it. All right, so for Man of Steel, Matt brought up that we didn't... I don't think we actually rated it the last time or when we when we reviewed it a couple years ago. I did. I gave it my rating. Yeah. I wasn't going to throw you under the bus. Oh, no. I, 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 didn't, I mean, I didn't care enough to go back and re-listen to it. Oh. <laughs> I <laughs> so I mean uh and like I remember the movie very well and I hated it. I did not like it at all. 
overblown, over the top, so much destruction. And I think Matt and I, you and I, we argued about it for a hot 25 minutes, <laughs> I think. It was, it was quite some time. But I don't think this one we're going to have too much to argue about. I, I, do, I just don't know what's going on. I appreciated that they tried to do something a little bit different with man with a uh, uh, Batman versus Superman. It definitely looks a lot better uh, how it was shot. It looks a lot better. Uh, in fact, they used the same uh, cinematographer that Snyder used for Watchmen. I don't remember his name, but I love the visual the visual of that is Watchmen. And so this one has some cool visuals to it also, especially like what Matt was saying during the Bruce Wayne's parents getting shot during the opening credits. There's some excellent shots and pictures that they create during that little sequence. And there's some there's stuff like that, I guess, peppered throughout the movie that works incredibly nice, uh, nicely. And it kind of also um, distracts you from the problem that is Batman versus Superman, the movie. At least... The Superman in BVS was the Superman that an audience can connect to. I mean, we can actually sort of see him help and save people. You really don't see Superman help or save people in Man of Steel. And Batman vs. Superman didn't actually feel like a massive trailer. Um, That also can be attested to how Man of Steel is just nonstop action in the last hour or so. And just like incoherent mess of action. Uh, even the stuff that takes place on planet Krypton with, uh, with, uh, with, with Papa L, with Daddy L, <laughs> Russell Crowe, Superman's dad, up there. He has to have a big, a big battle scene. Just all these moments in Man of Steel, including the dialogue of talking about the god. You know, you are a godlike leader. All that complicated, overly complicated exposition and unneeded uh, leader godlike talk. That is not in Batman versus Superman. It is littered all through Man of Steel. And that is what I mean by uh, by it felt like a massive trailer, is that it just made for a nice-sounding, pretty trailer. Batman vs. Superman doesn't necessarily do that. Yes, they talk about the god that is Superman and how people feel like they need to be able to contain whatever situation that he might actually fuck up in the future and do they actually need a god because in man of steel he was the one that brought the uh brought zod <laughs> pretty much to come fuck up everything it was superman that kind of did that so you know like it, there there's some valid points uh there there are there are some more valid points in batman versus superman uh raised by the humans than there were in uh, Man of Steel. However, the issue with Batman versus Superman is that they don't really talk about that too much in detail. The only thing you hear about the uh, the people of Metropolis, uh, you know, they're just saying, "Do we really need a god? He's a false god," and that's all they're saying. False god. They just still, um, uh, they're really playing up the the Greek Roman. Uh, godlike, you know, uh, uh, symbolism there, or uh, yeah, symbolism there with you know with the statues and monuments and and whatnot. But they really don't go into the reasons why, why, why do these people hate him so much? And I think that could have been uh, more of an opportunity taken with 
or, or I think that could have been an opportunity that could have been taken with with Eisenberg's Lex Luthor character. Yeah, I mean Lex Luthor. I, you know, I, I I kind of understand his motivation in a way that he you know his manacle motivation for wanting to create something that will stop Superman in case something gets out of control again. But really, is that an, an evil thing? Not really. So therefore, we needed something that felt more like an evil thing. What was his motivation? What kind of advantages did he want to take over Superman? And you really don't have that in Batman versus Superman, which is which is which is a shame because all that godlike stuff and all, you know, trying to um, use what the people feel towards Superman against him would have worked so much better. But who knows, that might have been phoning in for some people. Batman vs. Superman had all the destruction without the comp- uh, consequences as well, just as Man of Steel. I mean, however, we see do see these fight scenes, though, but because how the fight scenes in Batman vs. Superman are shot and how they're handled, the audience... They just don't have an idea of the scale of the fight scenes, you know? Like, we don't exactly know what all are they blowing up. And to me, that's a problem. Because, again, no consequences. I mean, there are no consequences. And I know the big fight scene takes place on a deserted island in an unpopulated area in the middle of wherever. You know, still, though, I mean, one, you know, all these massive chemical explosions, these big tanker explosions can affect people still not just not just on this uninhabited island so you don't have an idea of scale however the fight scenes in these characters do slightly feel more heroic because we see superman saving some people and we do get sick and tired of seeing him save lois lane he does indeed feel a little bit more heroic the special effects are used more appropriately in batman versus superman but not much more than Man of Steel, still overblown. Batman vs. Superman's story and the character goals are more confusing, I think. Batman and Superman should be escapism entertainment, for example. Sometimes this muddled story and all this tension just really becomes too taxing, especially at 2 hours and 40 minutes. You need something more to escape to, Many plot devices, I think, didn't work. Yet again, Lois Lane is the lame plot device. You know, like the whole Krypton staff, you know, Lois Lane throwing it into the water and randomly knowing later on that Batman or Superman might need it, so she goes and finds it again. And also the plot device of when Batman is about to stick... Superman with the kryptonite staff and they keep talking about Martha and who 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 is Martha and Lois Lane pops up and sticks her head in right you know right where the staff is and goes Bruce Martha is the name of his mother and that saves everything just think 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 Superman that Lois Lane was there and her exposition paid off and then we move, lastly, on to the inclusion of the other Justice League characters, like Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Cyborg, and The Flash. Uh, I thought Wonder Woman, though I think her character was warranted in a way, every time her character appeared, you got this really fucking weird rockin' guitar music kind of playing. Just totally out of place and completely contradictory to Hans Zimmer's orchestrations that you were hearing uh, earlier on. All of a sudden, now you have fucking Batman Beyond music playing when you see Wonder Woman. 
Uh, and then we also have the found footage video of Aquaman and the metal robot dude that apparently goes by the name of Cyborg. The found footage is god-awful and does not make me look forward to the Aquaman movie. It was embarrassing to watch that shit. It was fucking embarrassing. And it was poorly directed and poorly shot. I wanted to like it. I wanted to enjoy it. Yes, it was shot nice. Yes, I liked Batman, especially Bruce Wayne playing Batman. And I liked the differences in this movie compared to Man of Steel. Not just the way it was shot, but the way the story was told. But honestly, this movie is not a good movie. It just is not. When you add everything up together, you have more lemons than you do have something fresh and more delicious with less acidity in it. So I give Batman vs. Superman Dawn of Justice 2 out of 5. Alright, well there you go. That is the rating there. So... Not bad. I mean, it ends up being okay at the end of the day, right? <laughs> With an average rating of 2.5. <laughs> In the middle. I mean, I, honestly, that's not a bad rating. It's really not. Rating. I mean, for, for everything it was trying to do, it is definitely not the worst movie out there. Um, and they definitely did do some things right. Yeah, so, I mean, I will still I'll take Batman Forever. And, and I didn't read the cast list, uh, but something I also was that I also enjoyed... Uh, aside from the introduction of Jesse Irons, uh, Jesse, goddamn, Jeremy Irons, who I thought was good in casting and not liking Jesse Eisenberg, um, they brought back everybody from the original cast. Literally everybody. If they had a speaking role um, and had something to do with the plot from the first, they're back. Um, so I thought that that was an extra nice touch. So, yay. Um all right, so next week's movies are The Wave, White God, and The Tribe. All of these are going to be Netflix and or available for streaming rental. Um, and that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. Uh, you can check them out at facebook.com and ReverbNation, ReverbNation.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at slscast.com. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. You can always, of course, follow us on, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Diane Lane, I get to say this. Even the short men I know appreciate a woman in heels. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>